Welcome to this episode of Bossable Podcast. I'm recording this at 9.30 at home and our kid just fell asleep. I didn't want to head to the studio this late, so I set up a mini studio in our walk-in closet. <laughs> it seems all the clothes around me are pretty good at dampening echo, so this works out really well. Lately, I've been pretty busy at work. Tomorrow Labs is growing and business is looking good. And we're looking for, well, like everyone, we're looking for experienced software developers to join the team. Let me know if you're interested. We're building a blockchain-based digital trading system for the residential real estate market, among other cool and interesting things. Today's episode is pretty special. My guest is one of the most influential businessmen in Finland. He's the chairman of the board at Sampo Group, Nordia, and OPM Kummer. His net worth is in the hundreds of millions. He's known to have pretty strong opinions, and he doesn't exactly hold back in expressing them. If you like the episode, share it on social media and tell your friends and colleagues about it so that they don't miss out on a great episode. Okay, now let's get to it. You are listening to the Basketball Podcast. I'm Sami, and this is my interview with Björn Valros. So uh, let's just start off by talking a little about your background. So before your career in business, you actually spent 10 years in academia. So when you look back on that time now, do you feel that you learned something that was really essential for your business career? Or do you feel that you should have gone into business earlier? Or what's your feeling about that? I certainly shouldn't have gone into business earlier. But um, no, actually, the 10 years in academia was preceded by five years of revolution. And I think I probably learned even more from that. I mean, while in high school and first year at college, I was sort of more or less extreme left by, at least by the standards of the day. And uh, I think those years were in many ways formative. One learns a lot about about organizations and people by, by uh, meeting them and dealing with them in somewhat one might call extreme circumstances. <laughs> they weren't that extreme. We were more hippies than, than than serious leftists. But anyway, academia did teach me quite a lot, particularly my couple of years in the US did. Most importantly, I think, uh, was that after my sort of early adolescence uh, tinkering with the left, I, I certainly found a very, very stable new home in libertarianism or, or whatever, a very sort of solid view that uh, regulators and politics seldom really improves the world we live in particularly much and much more often does the opposite. Yeah, so was that so that you read Ayn Rand and that informed your decision making or did that happen afterwards? No, no. <laughs> I, I think I read Atlas Shrugged uh, sort of around the time when I started out in sort of in business mid 1980s. Okay. But I have to admit that it didn't impress me all that much. I mean, the even if I've in some interviews sometimes said that Ayn Rand has influenced my way of, of looking at life or thinking, that's sort of just, that's a partial truth. At best, I think she has a good story to tell, but she tells it, she uses about five times too many pages to tell the story. <laughs> yeah, it's a long book. <laughs> it's a very long book. But the story is right. The idea that you sort of, that there is another world out there somewhere, which is better. And 
and we can, which you can actually migrate to. I, I think it's a beautiful thought, and it's a beautiful thought to, to say that actually this idea that the Marxists have taught us that that it's it's the it's the laborers, the the, the workers who, who are being robbed. Uh, well, Ayn Rand, of course, puts that sort of on its head and basically said, "Look, the people are really robbed are the most creative people." It's kind of an interesting idea. So you already mentioned one, but are there other like defining moments in your career that you feel that made a significant impact in your thinking and the way that you operate? Well, uh, of course, one very significant moment in my career was was when I, I decided or or <laughs> was kicked into private life. Uh, I, I moved into academia in the mid 1980s, 85, to what was a highly regulated and very conservative world of, world of banking. Seven years later, the world of banking had changed, not necessarily exclusively for the better, and I moved out of it, or partly was forced out of it, by, by privatizing a small part of my previous employer. And, and going from a large, bureaucratic, conservative, and rather inefficient organization into a very small one on your own risk to sort of yeah. become entrepreneurial, I mean, that must qualify as a well, a defining or at least a very important moment. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and I mean, that's a huge shift moving from bureaucracy to starting a small or running a very small organization and then slowly moving upwards. Where do you feel that you are now? I mean, do you feel that you eventually got back to this like big bureaucracy or do you still feel that you're operating a lean, lean companies? The sad thing is that I, I'm kind of sadly out of that race. Chairmen, particularly of large companies, aren't really running organizations sure. the way sort of American type CEO chairman yeah. are. You're, you can be important and you, can, you, you may have a, a big impact on the organization, even a defining impact, but you don't really run it in, yes, in, in the way you run an entrepreneurial organization. So in that sense, it's very difficult to say, I now find myself in a position where, I'm, where I am, admittedly, when I choose to be so quite influential. But on the other hand, I have the great fortune of of not having to involve myself in all day-to-day -day practices and therefore I can I can live a life pretty much as I want to. I've often joked that that I've been very lucky in life and and one of those sort of strikes of luck is that almost at exactly the time when I decided to sort of skip the my executive career in 2009 or so late 2009 Steve Jobs came up with the iPad. He had come up with the iPhone two years earlier. So at or around the time when I sort of gave up my, my, my executive career, I could also give up my, my sort of Lutheran work ethic-based approach to putting in FaceTime. I could just sort of get yeah. the hell out of here, be somewhere <laughs> else and, and just email people and stuff like that. So thank you, Steve Jobs. When you're doing something that's pretty hard or you, you're like, it's something that stresses you out, you sometimes lose sleep. And I think that that's somewhat a good thing because that means that I'm doing things that I'm a little afraid of, but I still think that I should do them. How often do you lose sleep? I think you probably lose sleep over the decisions you make. Bertrand Russell wrote a really peculiar small book called The Conquest of Happiness, I think. I read it when I was sort of 20-something. There's one thing in that book which I always remember. He said that if you're if you're thinking about a lot of things, you have yeah. a problem. I mean, he was he was talking more about academic problems, sort of mathematical problems. Sure. He said uh, he has found that it really sort of makes a lot of sense of, of stopping trying to push for a solution. Yeah. 
and sort of let that problem just sort of slowly drop sure. into your subconscious and then sleep on it, perhaps sleep more than one night on it, and eventually the solution will emerge. Actually, he does have a point, at least where I'm concerned. I do find myself at times, not that infrequently, I may wake up for half an hour during the night and I recapitulate, I, I sort of... I may find solutions to problem. I'm not yeah. not now talking about huge mathematics, sort of <laughs> principia mathematica yeah. kind of stuff, but day-to-day problems. Yes. And then I, I have to find a mnemotechnic rule to remember the, whatever it yeah. is, so that I remember it in the morning. And I think I have a. I, I don't. I'm not one of those people with a with a sort of Notebook. notepad yeah. notepad yeah. next to my bed. Yeah. But but yeah, that kind of losing sleep, sort of waking up and just oh my god, yes, I forgot to do that, or this is mm. the solution to that. That mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but but when you ask me, do you lose sleep? The, that's a, the, the kind of thing where you we don't fall asleep in, in at night. Yeah. You you just lie there, you toss and turn. That I don't do. I never had. Okay, is there a, like another form that like if if you're stressed out about something or if you feel that this is a big decision that you just have to make and maybe you are able to like have a couple of nights in between, but it's still a big decision that you have to make. Does it come out as stress? This sounds may sound absolutely crazy. I've been in business now for close on 35 years. And admittedly, I've been party to some pretty big decisions, uh, either as advisor in earlier days, as investment banker or something, and Mm -hmm. over the last 20 years as principal primarily, almost 20 years. I don't think I've ever had, ever been in a situation where I've really pondered this, this, whatever decision it is for a very long time. I mean, my recollection is that whatever I've decided, it's always been very, very clear to me. And I haven't gone to and fro. There, there may be some exceptional smaller thing that I may have pondered, but usually, and this is a lot to do, I think, with risk aversion, really. I don't like to do close calls. If it's a close call, I, I want to stay away from it. Now, you may say that's also a decision, but, but frequently in, in the business I am, in finance, you can actually, you can often stay out of the close calls altogether. You don't go into the risky sure. part of the jungle, if you put it that way. And thereby, uh, you can you can largely stay and create value in an area where, where your decisions, your calls are, where you can be fairly confident. And, and for that reason, I, I, I have seldom, I can't really even remember a decision that would have been difficult. Wow, that's impressive. So, and, and I think in general, you come off as a very self-confident person, but I think that everyone still has moments when they're not absolutely sure about themselves. Well, self-confident may be a way of describing it, but of course, I, I'm, I'm not a risk taker. Never have been, actually. Dislike risk very much. I think my track record is pretty clear on, on sort of solid uh, long-term performance. I, I have a pretty, this is another link to academia, actually. I, I have a pretty good view, and I'm very, very confident that my view of where the world is going, broadly, macro, whatever you want to call it, sure. is, is, is the correct one. And, and if you have that view to start from, it's not particularly difficult to draw some pretty general sort of conclusions of what a given company should be doing to adapt itself to that kind of an environment. That's why I dislike technology. That's why I have never invested in, never will have anything to do with high tech. I'm, I'm <laughs> mentally, technically, in terms of skill, totally incompetent to deal with technology because it moves way too fast. I base all of my decision-making on my view of where the world in, in very, very sort of meta or macro terms are going. And this works 
in conservative, slow-moving industries, where, yes, there is technological change, but it's reasonably predictable. I, I love technology. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that I could not live sure. in the kind of sort of high-tech world that, that yeah. you usually would be referring to with that term. Sure. And actually, as an outsider, when I look at your career, what stands out to me is your ability to look at what's currently happening, like you said, in the world and, and to understand the long-term and systemic impacts of those events and then being able to use them to your business benefit. And I would actually call that ability systems thinking. Do you think about the world in terms of systems? No, I don't. Or at least I don't think so. The way I pictured this for myself is that I'm an economist by training, and I'm a very sort of what you would call market-oriented economist. And, and then I'm a, 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 I, be, I believe in progress, as I said a moment ago, and I'm kind of an optimist. So I think the world moves slowly and a bit haphazardly towards, towards some ideal state, which it will never achieve. Sort of fantastic, great state, that ideal state is, is, is defined by market forces, broadly understood. And, and then, then I ask myself, if this is the case, then what will happen to, like, say, let's say, the demand for printing paper or the demand for credit or the demand for insurance or whatever? And um, one thing which I've found over and over, I've, I've had people in my organization, be it on the banking side or the insurance side, even on, on, on the pulp and paper side, becoming very, very worried about some uh, trend or or thing that's going on. There's any number of these things where, where your organization can go haywire and say, oh my God, there are these, this, will, this is a huge threat to our business model or, or we're, this is a huge threat to the way we do things. And I almost invariably, I find myself on the, the sort of reversion to the mean sort of side of the argument saying, look, calm down, nothing much will happen. It's not <laughs> going to be so dramatic. And, and, I really have to stretch myself to find an example, which I do find, of, of sort of truly revolutionary changes within industries that I have even peripherically had anything to do with. And th th there is one absolutely huge counterexample, and that, of that? course, that's Nokia. Yeah, that's okay. mobile phones. Yeah, sure. That is a case, the most fantastic counterargument. Sometimes there are truly fundamental technological revolutions that completely change a business. And that's Nokia mobile phones for you and Steve Jobs. But mostly these things aren't that revolutionary. I mean, we can start talking. I'm not sure electrical cars will go very far. I'm pretty sure self-driving cars will not go much of anywhere. Sure. But even if that's true, that like very few of the changes are revolutionary, you'd still probably agree that like the digital landscape and, and like uh, technology is still changing uh, all kinds of industries, including finance, significantly. And the world is getting more interconnected and complex. And actually, how do you feel that that should change the way that we run our organizations? Of course, it changes it a whole lot. If you had said revolutionize, I would have objected and say, sure. look, it's not revolutionizing anything. But we all have to invest and we have to learn to stay ahead or even to sort of not being too far behind, whichever applies. But, but what I'm just saying is it, it seldom makes a lot of sense to go hysterical. Sure. The, the cases where, where um, a reasonable amount of investment and a reasonably skillful organization cannot in itself sort of keep up with the pace of change 
are not that many. Nokia being the most famous exception, but but of course, you might argue that their organization was not reasonably competent. There were a lot of people who were not up to their jobs at the time. So the challenge is, while great and while while of course technology is completely revolutionizing some industries, it hasn't changed the world as much as we sometimes think. I I have a parallel here. I I think it's absolutely fascinating. I always used to refer to Stanley Kubrick's classic Space Odyssey 2001, which is actually filmed, if I remember correctly, in 1968. Now, do you remember the point of the film? Well, people are traveling between space stations and all kinds of weird vehicles, and it's very daily. You travel to all kinds of planets and shit. But then, do you remember what the computer looks like? Yes. <laughs> Hal. Yes, Hal. Hal. Hal was, ex- God damn, it's a factory hall. <laughs> and every memory cell of Hal was the size of a phone book sure. directory. And this is fascinating. We always overestimate the progress in what I call strong forces. We overestimate our capability to master gravity, for instance. Actually, if you look at a jetliner today, it looks pretty much the same as a Boeing 707. It's more efficient, yes, but it's basically the same thing flying sure. about. We don't have these weird sort of flying automobiles and stuff that that and or, or interplanetary traffic and God knows what. But in microelectronics, I mean, everybody thought Maxwell Smart's uh, shoe telephone <laughs> was a joke. But today we have more computing power in our pocket sure. than sort of I don't know a hundred no hundred thousand IBM three sixties whatever. So. Yes, technology moves ahead, and it might actually even move faster than we think. But because the physical world is so slow-moving, a lot of the institutions that we need to keep this modern technology in place will still be there, and they actually define part of the final technological solution. There's no area is more obvious than banking, because when people think of banking, they always think payments. So everybody thinks that banking is about me being able to pay a $100 debt to you, which is part of the story. And so everybody thinks banks will be completely useless when you, on an iPhone I can take your picture and then sort of just type in, write, send $100 to this man. Well, banking isn't about payments. I mean, it is, yes, but we don't make any money out of it. It's kind of a piping underneath the surface of where banks make their money. So even if, if we were allowed to give away our payments traffic we'd probably be happy to do so. It's not a challenge. The fact that you create more efficient technologies don't automatically or always mean that you're actually challenging the old sort of existing structures. Yes, yes. And those are much more revolutionary changes when when those structures change. So how about in the context of of business and in the the context of, let's say, organizations, and we were talking about how how technology uh, like has an impact on the financial sector. Do you feel that like if there was a major thing that happened in the financial sector, do you feel that that would not be technology, that you feel that that would probably come from from the existing structures uh, changing for some other reason than technology? Well, we, we've had a huge revolution or a huge structural sort of shift in the industry, and that's regulation. Since, of course, having lived for 20 years in, in a deregulatory environment from, let's say, sure. uh, end of or mid-1980s until, well, the financial crisis of 2008, 
uh, we then shifted mode into re-regulation. Now we already have the signs there that that hasn't gone that well. Mm. Admittedly, there are some aspects. We needed more capital in the banking system. Everybody agrees on that. We needed certain rules that weren't there before, but the overall sort of philosophy of regulation is not a particularly good one. So we've already gone through a, a change in financial services, which has changed the fundamentals of how the business is run. And it has not been at least not 100% lucky or, or fortunate development. My impression of the financial services industry essentially that is that you have technological change in that industry going on all the time. Take an example, something like ETFs, uh, exchange-traded trade, funds, which is a more efficient form of, of what used to be called a mutual fund. Uh, they've taken a lot of market share. A lot of people find it very efficient, a very efficient way to invest their money in these very low-cost vehicles or using them. They were revolutionized part of our business. Sure. Payments traffic I already talked about. I mean, you have these things coming all the time. Uh, we are now in our insurance division. We are regulating, we're, we're handling about two-thirds of our private claims from private individuals. Two-thirds of them are processed within 24 hours because we use fairly simple artificial intelligence to weed out the obviously non-fraudulent claim and we settle them. Sure. So there's things going on all the time, but very few of them change the fundamentals sure. of a well-run organization. They do pose challenges for the less well-run organizations. Let's talk about like these well-run organizations. You already mentioned a couple of times that you feel that one essential part of a well-run organization is the competent people that that it has within it. We, we talked about how the world is getting more interconnected and more complex. And, and I feel that one of the impacts that that has on organizations is that the best understanding of what's happening in the business is actually with the people who are close to the customers. And it's actually not at the top of the organization, for example. And I think that is something that has changed over time through digital services where like, it used to be so that the top leadership had the best view because they had all the data and the people working lower in the lower parts of the organization necessarily didn't have the same amount of data. But nowadays, it's possible for the people like in the lower parts and in the front parts of the organization to have pretty much almost the same data as the top leadership. So how do you feel that that changes the decision-making in an organization? Should that shift the decision-making to more towards the customers or do you still think that we need hierarchy? There are, there are so many changes that affect the situation you're describing. Because while the story you're telling certainly is true, I might also tell you a different story or another story, which is one about digitalization. As you offer digital services to your clientele, you have to centralize your organization. You cannot have individual digitalized sort of solutions for each and every one of your customer the way you can do in a physical distribution network. In a physical distribution network, you can have a nice lady who is a bit slow, but who's very nice, serving the customer who has a lot of time and who appreciates this sort of slow but nice environment. And then you can have another sort of younger, more aggressive person serving the client who wants to do it sort of quick and, yeah. and not have any small talk. You can't have that kind of stuff in a digital world, or at least you cannot have nearly as much of it. In a digital world, you essentially have a centralized offering. So you're pushing it 
into a hell of a lot of customer interfaces. Of course, you receive feedback, but still, it is centrally run. And therefore, you might say that the top leadership in a completely digitalized environment actually gets the frontline data because the frontline data is there in digital form and it's transformed back. So actually, the guy at the center will be better informed than he was before. Whereas in your example, you were essentially said, the guy well, at the front, the yeah. frontline guy will be better informed. I'm not really sure which is the case. Sure. And then if you add to this regulation, which has uh, had a side effect that it's put a damper on everything. Everyone in financial services today is scared stiff of violating some rule, the most obvious being mis-selling. You are not allowed. You can't market financial services the way you market toothpaste. If we were selling savings products the way the toothpaste manufacturers who seem to be promising their customers everything from a shining white smile to a new happy marriage to God knows what, if we did that, we'd yeah. be in court all the time or yeah. we would just be fined without the court order. So the point is, you have at least these three things going on at the same time. I, regulation, centralization, and your decentralization, okay? I don't really know what the net effect of this will be. <laughs> One thing is sure, though. Since the world changes, and, and since the pace of that changed, at least in certain sectors, has become even faster, we need to be better and more efficient and faster to pick up the information. So any organization, irrespectively of whether it decides on the front, in the front line or in some central office, will have to have much better accurate and sort of real-time type of data yeah, yeah. and be on top of the situation than before. However, you also need to have a vision. And, and that is a thing which I think people frequently forget when they talk about change. They think that change is sort of self-defining. It's not self-defining. The people, the visionaries are the people who make the new world come true. That's why Steve Jobs had such an enormous impact. This guy wasn't the greatest techno whatever. He didn't have sort of five PhDs in, in rocket science or whatever. I mean, he was essentially a visionary, a marketer and a visionary. And he, he visualized products that didn't exist and would, most engineers probably told him that's impossible to do. And apparently, at least when you read Walter Isaacson's book and you look at the films, you actually realize that many of them basically tried to tell him that what he was visualizing was impossible. So having a vision, be it about a specific product like in Steve Jobs' case or about the world as a whole, is very important. Okay. You talked about being, being data-driven and being able to use real-time data to in, inform your decisions. Does that mean that you're also talking to... Uh, talking about organizations sharing that data more? Because I, I think one of the uh, traits of a traditional hierarchical organization is also that the uh, leaders and, and the hierarchy also act as like stoppers or like they actually prevent information and data from flowing within the organization. And, the, and that was also like, there was no technology for that before and it was a lot harder in many ways. But nowadays we have the technology, we can share the information if we want to. We can, but now remember what happened at Facebook. Okay, now this is a very, very important question because I would basically agree with you. We need to sort of open up, have transparency. We need to give as many people as possible access to all this data. But what happens then? Two things. First of all, a lot of our customers would basically scream bloody murder. You can't share that information. And quite rightly so. 
And then, of course, regulators will tell you, no way, you have to have very strict rules. Sure. I mean, we have a lot of sort of data protection, God GDPR, knows what, GDPRS, yeah, yeah. whatever they're all called, yeah. uh, rules that, that come in here. I mean, if anything, I think we're moving because of regulation into the direction of more compartmentalization of data. I don't know what will come out of this Facebook debate, but, but at least so far, I mean, Facebook's, Mr. Zuckerberg's and Facebook's reaction, I think, clearly indicates that anybody dealing with that will have to become more and more careful. Sure. And actually, I kind of want to distinguish between two things. So I'm not talking about violating privacy of individuals, because I, I feel very strongly about that, that we should be very careful about that. And actually, people should own their data, and they should be able to control that and, and so on. But I still think that within organizations, there's a lot of data that is not personal data. It's like aggregated data. There's financial data. It's really, so you know, in, practic in practice, it's really, really tough. It's really tough. Look, in insurance, for instance, we, we have the technology today to offer really, really efficient car insurance, provided you allow us access to the data where you drive, how you drive, <laughs> okay, and with what you drive. Sure. How many clients do you want? Do you think today wants to release that information? They are. And there's some e, there's some EU regulation that it's the driver who actually owns that information, which I think is a good thing. But I'm just telling you. People just don't want to release their information, even for purposes of aggregation, because they don't somehow, they trust an insurance company much more than they trust, for instance, a car manufacturer. If BMW or Mercedes or God knows anybody was trying to buy that information from you, I'm absolutely sure you would say, no discount in the price of a new car will allow me to release that, sure. will, will you convince me to release that information. Perhaps people understand a little more about traffic insurance and they realize that location information, for instance, is an obvious part of, of pricing. So it is really tough in organizations today. We, we probably work much more on preventing information, be, sort of being, <laughs> at least when we're talking customer and sales sure. and, and sort of yeah. frontline business information, being sort of... Uh, aggregated or used for business purposes. We have to check it very, very carefully. Sure. There's been a lot of organizations, smaller organizations than the, the ones that you're operating, but like that don't have... Uh, so for example, if you're not a public company and you don't need to share your like all of your financial data, then there's a lot of smaller companies who just decide that they don't want to share that data with their employees because they feel that they have some kind of advantage in negotiations or something like that because they don't share the financial details. And that's something that I'm kind of referring to, whether like, because I, I feel that it would be much better that we get into a world where where that data, like financial data, because you can actually, employees can also use that to make better business decisions within that organization. And that's why I feel that that should be shared within the organization. And that's would, not a privacy violation. No, no, I, I would agree with that. I would agree. However, I would add one thing. Yeah. If you say, in order to create an efficient sort of labor market where people can make informed decisions of whether they want to stay with an employer or whether he's so financially sort of badly off that they want to leave him or whatever. Yeah. In order to create that more efficient labor market, you should also, I think, take a look at trade unions and how far you allow them to use not just data, but, but sort of old-fashioned, good old-fashioned monopoly power. So, okay, if we can make a deal here, you get all the financial data from every goddamn firm for all of the people who you talk about. If I can only get some sort of restriction on trade unions to use their monopoly power, then we have a deal. <laughs> okay. 
Based on what I've read about you, I would say that you especially value domain expertise uh, in leaders. So how important do you consider meta, meta skills such as like empathy and social intelligence and being able to communicate effectively with others? There's a wonderful episode of Star Trek, the original series. Now, it was only produced for three seasons with Captain James T. Kirk and his crew aboard the USS Enterprise. And there's a wonderful episode where the transporter breaks down. Now, the transporter, you may know, was this technology which allowed people from the Enterprise to visit the surface of some planet because it sort of ionized people and then shifted them and then reconstructed them or whatever. Anyway, they go back and forth to planets by use of this transporter. Then one day, it's operated by Scotty, the chief engineer. So this is why James T. Kirk always says, beam me up, Scotty. And at that stage, up goes James T. Kirk. Anyway, this transporter uh, breaks down. They don't realize this at first. When James T. Kirk is, is beamed up to the Enterprise, he's actually split into two persons. So within the scope of about five minutes, two James T. Kirks materialize in the transporter room of the Enterprise. And the criterion for the split is more or less exactly what you're asking about, because it splits the soft aspects <laughs> of, of Captain Kirk into one person and the hard aspects of his personality into the other. Now, the moral of the story, which eventually becomes very obvious, they notice this problem when they transport up a dog-like creature from that same planet. And all of a sudden, they notice that they have two completely different dogs. One is just whining and very scared all the time, and the other just barks and bites and whatever. The point of the story is very simple. To make a great leader, you have to have both. And James T. Kirk, who is known as the universally greatest starship commander ever, is completely worthless when you remove either the soft skill or the hard skill. You need both. So my answer to your question is very simple. I value what you call, call domain skills. I've always pointed out that there are no true generalists. Sure. You can't take a guy from anywhere and say, ah, come in here and run this bank or, or, or taking a banker and put him and run some goddamn smokestack industry. It very rarely works because you need to understand the nitty gritty. You need to understand the fine print of the markets underlying that business. You need to know the technology and stuff like that. However, to be a leader, providing you have the domain skills. So, so you need to have some domain skills. And then on top of that, you need to have the right combination of Captain Kirk's soft skills and hard skills. Because a good, good leader is hard in the sense that he's very consequent. He, is, uh, he takes responsibility. He makes clear decisions. He doesn't give in to various forms of pressure. He's very consistent. He is, is just, but he's just in a very... In, a, in an almost black and white way. But at the same time, he's reasonably skillful at communicating this. And he's good, he's good at receiving information. This is interestingly an aspect which, which goes back to your original question about academia. One of the things I learned in academia was the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher. The good teachers are the teachers who are able to pick up the signals from their audience that now they have lost their audience. The people who can receive the weak signals from an auditorium that the thing I just said didn't really go through. It really did not work. And, and so a good teacher is kind of a feedback mechanism. A person who, yes, is reasonably good at presenting, but more importantly than that, a person who can modify his presentation 
based on the weak signals that he picks up from the audience. I've seen great presenters who have been really bad teachers because they sort of present in a vacuum and they don't receive the feedback. So good leadership is, is, is all of these things. Domain knowledge, toughness, or whatever you call the hard skill, the communicating skills, and particularly the feedback property. Closing off, if you could pick anyone living or dead to have dinner with, who would that be? I think I would very much like to dine with Milton Friedman. I never met him, and, and I, I read most or much of the stuff he wrote. He, he really, he also had a background on the left. I mean, he, he was a new dealer in, in, during the war and, and that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I, I'm very sorry. I should have sort of, should have gone the extra mile probably sometimes when he was at the Hoover Institution or whatever and just flown down. Never did. So he would certainly be up there. And, uh, and I think that would be the name I would pick. And then, of course, uh, of the living, I, I wonder, in a way, I, I may be influenced by popular reconstruction in the form of Netflix series, but I, I think Her Majesty Elizabeth II of, of Great Britain and, and a number of other things <laughs> uh, would be a fascinating person to, to sort of, if one would really be allowed to spend time Mm -hmm. with, with the amount of experience, of course, she would not do it. But, but anyway, so those are a few examples. Great. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. You have reached the other side. Thank you for listening to the full episode. Now is the time to share it with friends, family, and colleagues. If you like this episode, you might also want to listen to the episode we did with Nobel laureate Ben Tolmström on incentives, or the episode on getting rid of budgets with Bjarte Boxness. Have a great week and stay tuned for more episodes of Boss Level Podcast. Podcast.